welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm Ariel Basca, and my co-host Ravia Satabi and I have been watching some great stuff at Fantasia. Today, we are catching up with the director of When I Consume You, Perry Blackshear. We are delighted to speak with you about this film today. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about When I Consume You at Fantasia Fest. I know this is not your first go-round at Fantasia, given the success of your earlier film, They Look Like People, but yes. I wondered if you could share with us what the experience at Fantasia of this particular film has been like for you. Yeah, so thanks so much and thanks for having me. Fantasia means so much to us. Our our first film was sort of a coming out of nowhere. We did, you know, we made it for $5,000. We had no idea what would, what would happen, so it... And it, it had gone to Slamdance and passed through some festivals, but we had never been to a genre festival before. And Fantasia really, I mean, we didn't know festivals could be like this. The community that's built here and the kind of atmosphere and the people in the audience, the questions were all better. And we sort of fell in love with the genre circuit after that. It also really transformed the arc of the film and people finally started to notice it. Mitch has been a huge inspiration and helped that first film get off its feet. So coming back feels, I mean, it, especially it's been a rough, uh, you know, you guys probably noticed rough two years, I'm sure for everybody or whatever. So uh, it, it felt like a wonderful, you know, way to come back to some stuff that we really loved uh, with this new film. All, all festivals have, I don't know. I mean, this is what it feels like. Like cities have sort of souls, like Chicago and New York, and festivals have souls to, to us. <laughs> and Fantasia's was our favorite festival experience. So it's so wonderful to be back here, even though oh, I just wish we could be there in person. But, you know, one day. Definitely. It would have been even more awesome uh, to have seen it in a bigger screen. But I'm happy that regardless of the current situation that we're worldwide in, I was able to see this movie because... It grabbed me. What a heartbreaking story. And again, it's in the same theme, like they look like people where there is this not so subtle, even like a really heart-wrenching story about mental health and dealing with that in society. For this particular story with the brother and sister, it, it deals with two people mm -hmm. um, going through this and him seeing her. What inspired you to make this uh, story from when it consumed you? I think some version of the script had been in my head for a while, for almost eight years. And it was always about this sort of dual protagonist story of a character who was, you know, they both were trying to fight something after them, an antagonist. And one of them had to transform. They both had to transform in some way to be able to fight this. And I, this is the first time I, I'm, but I'm sort of realizing that part of it is that I feel like I have... <laughs> Not, not quite like the devil and the angel on your shoulder, but I have a Wilson and a Daphne inside of me <laughs> where I feel, you know, Wilson has all this nerd stuff and magic cards and, and lives in this kind of womb and he gets to be kind of a kid, but that's only because his older brother or his sister protected him through so many things. And she's awesome, but also it's hard being Daphne. It's, you know, you have to hold the whole world together with sort of sheer force of will and deal with this kid basically and i definitely feel that wrestling match of how do you be soft enough to like enjoy life and love other people but also hard enough to confront life's difficulties and pain and fight through them and protect those you love so i think that was that sort of wrestling match between those those two ways of being especially 
getting older, you know, I'm in my late thirties now and looking to start a family and these sorts of things. It, it, uh, that was always, I think the, the heart and the soul of the movie. Definitely. And I want to commend you on this because a little personal fact is I raised my own little sibling, my own younger brother. And in some of the situations that Daphne and Wilson were in, I was thinking like, yeah, oh my God, I felt this type of despair. So it felt very true to heart the way they were portraying this. I've not dealt with drugs in the way that the characters were doing, but definitely the the mental health aspect and feeling like you've been abandoned by the system, especially we were both teen. Well, I was a teen when he was an infant um, when we got into this whole system. And it was just so gorgeous to see that portrayed in a, in a true to life way in this movie that really captured like I I felt like for them because I I, it resonated with me with my personal story so that Mm -hmm. was very beautiful to see and I would love to commend you on that oh well thank you that actually I'm that means a lot to me because I think the actors and I all have people in our life loved ones in our life that have experienced things not dissimilar from what Wilson and Daphne went through. And I think we were so, we cared so much about doing right by these characters and their experience. And this experience, we knew we had, it's a responsibility to tell these sorts of stories that we take very seriously. So I, that means a lot that, that it, it impacted you in that way. And when you talk about the strength and the resilience that you need to have as a human being encountering these different kinds of traumas in the real world, you also see that play out in your filmmaking as well, in that you're, you're, you're starting with a very hard gut punch to open on such a striking image and very, very resonant emotional impact, and then to kind of gentle the blow by the end of the film. How difficult was that in the directing and writing process? I think um, Libby, the actor, and, and Evan, we had some, it, I, we, I sort of put the actors through psychological ringers a little bit. And uh, at the end of the days, they apparently went and sat on a bench and Libby was looking to adopt a puppy. So they just puppy scrolled for like 20 minutes to kind of <laughs> deal with what, you know, they just went through, especially the scene where he discovers her you know, in the state that that scene, I think we only got two takes out of that. And then we all, including me, were just like, we got to, we got to stop. This is um, very, this is a lot. I think opening the way we did, I wanted to make sure that this felt tactile and physical. And I think when I've gone through bouts of loneliness or, or struggle, it hasn't felt in my head or sort of Oh, it's just mental. It feels physical. You wake up feeling kind of bludgeoned. And I wanted to bring physicality into the movie early. Definitely a kind of realism to it so that the ending felt, once we got to the ending, it felt earned. And like we had really, that it wasn't a waving a wand and it would all be okay, that they had really gone through a kind of crucible together, um, mentally and, and physically as well. And that key moment where you see the injury sustained by the, for want of a better word, trauma demon. And, you know, the, the, <laughs> the connection between violence and self-destruction, I think, is is just absolutely beautiful in this film. And the way that fighting against your demons can also result in personal injury. I wondered if, for you, making films in the genre space, if that feels like a natural when you're dealing with this psychological territory. 
Yeah, that's that's. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I do think that there is something very psychological about horror, and that I, I really love taking interior interior fights and making them exterior fights. So you can see, I mean, it's sort of for me, so I can see, <laughs> you know, some version of myself fight, some version of what keeps me up at night. I really like work like that. I think, I think Ari Aster said something like horror is the only genre where you can be totally bleak and nihilistic and it still be commercially viable or something like that. And that's not what, what I want to do. Cause there's certainly a place for that. But I, I do think that horror is a kind of, home where you can tell all sorts of stories and all go into all sorts of detail and it's all okay you know you can you can use fantasy and use all these things that it all sort of uh works and you can dive deep into you know the demons that live in our past and our heads and our our hearts and and make a, a story about that uh, i think it, it has a it's a genre with a ton of actual freedom and possibility as a side note a lot of my friends that used to make dramas are now getting into horror because they see the freedom. So, you know, they wanted to make a story about uh, immigration or, or adoption or one of these things. And they're like, oh, man, this was really scary for me. Oh, man, this is easy to make it a horror movie. And it's, it's exciting that I think the genre space is becoming I don't I'm not an expert, but it feels like there is a little bit of an influx of different kinds of people telling horror movies now about their life experience. And that's really exciting to me because we all, we need fresh voices uh, in, in every space. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the fun things about being a part of this uh, community. Uh, definitely. We could not agree more with that. What's been happening in the horror space is so interesting. And because you can step into it with a low budget, I think it, it's one of the genres that, you know, is more forgiving when you're an indie filmmaker, uh, definitely. You mentioned before you, you're putting the interior exterior. You did the same with They Look Like People. It also handles with mental health, schizophrenia, things that, that happen inside your head and you've projected it outside. Same mm -hmm. with When I Consume You. And I'm wondering, are there more stories as such that you want to tell in this particular fantastic genre space? Absolutely. It's, it's so great. And I... And this is a little bit of a tangent, but Buffy is a good example of a show that yeah. they took everything what it's like to being a teenager, mm -hmm. pressure about the future, jealous boyfriends, divorced parents, and turned it into something in a monster some some way. And I think that I, I, I mean it's almost becoming a little goofy now. Where the but but I do think that there's so much uh, to be mined still, and so many stories to be told still. I have um, I'm working on a TV show that's a sort of a new take on possession. Mm -hmm. And then there's one that's sort of a, about a demon that feeds off loneliness that I'm really excited about. I think that there is, there's a whole lot of places left to go and even not just with horror, but with sci-fi and all these, all these things. Mm -hmm. I think having an influx of people to the space has created a lot of possibility. And so we're not just telling the same old stories, the same old way. I'm excited about, the stuff I'm doing. And I'm also really excited about the stuff all these other people are doing, because I think especially the youngs, because I'm getting old now, are bringing so much life and energy and, and their own life experience to, to these movies, which I'm so happy about. I wanted to also ask, what led you to, in this film, talk about family and the combination of nature and nurture that emerges as a theme within the relationship of the brother and the sister? I think 
I don't know how many of these things are conscious, but I, I guess what I would say, and then thank you for pointing that out, the nature, nature versus nurture. I've, I've seen, especially growing older, friends that I've known for a long time, I've discovered that they were, whether it happened in childhood or teenagerhood or something, are walking around with so much pain and that I never knew. Uh, and I think many people walk around with so much pain <laughs> and have found ways to metabolize it or sort of put it left of center. But then you get older, you begin to have a family. These things kind of emerge in weird ways. And I think what I cared about was that the two siblings are sort of two sides of dealing with this pain. And one was like, if someone hits you, you hit them back three times as hard until, until they die. <laughs> and one was, you just have to be of service and be kind and hope they'll go away eventually and they'll stop hurting you. And, and the way that those, what happened to them when they were young and the way that that creates who they are as an adults and, and if they can change and what happens when they try to change and, and all of that, I think, feels personal to me. And I think it was a, like, two sides of the same coin to some degree with, with there being siblings and how the same process could create these two very different people and what they do with that when they're adults. I read somewhere, this is a pressing statement, uh, personalities are just coping mechanisms. <laughs> and so, you know, just putting that out there. Uh, <laughs> but beyond the intellectual, I think I just loved watching these two characters like protect each other and defend each other. And I think Libby the reason she jumped on board so passionately was this idea of Daphne just defending her brother at no matter what. And that was her sort of like, you know, path forward in the movie. And, and um, so, yeah, I guess I said a lot in answer to that, but I, you can tell I care about this stuff and some of it's not fully formed, I suppose. But thank you. That's, that's wonderful. And there's so much of that love between the two, the way that it shows in both the script and the performances that I think demonstrates a lot of that care and attention you put into it. Well, thank you. Yes, we, we, it mattered a lot to us. It's, it's tough because you never, you, you can't ever really be an expert. So I think we tried really hard to draw from experiences that we've had in our people that we've loved have had to, to sort of bring it out from there. Um, so I appreciate that. It, it almost, as as you were saying it, I was thinking like, oh, this is like a, they're, they're kind of reacting differently on generational trauma. That's kind of what it is, right? Yeah. Um, you get trauma from your parents and then the way you react to it is how you form your habits and your quote unquote personality. <laughs> um, I mean, but there were so many details, especially with Wilson and being such a nerd and they had their own ways of like verifying that they were each other. Like I'm your brother because remember the, the little turtle and then uh-huh. um, I had to kill it. I had to kill it. And so I did it because you can't, cause you love that turtle. How did you come up with so many um, details and was that hard to direct? We wanted to be pretty specific about their background again, without showing it, because I think we've seen, you know, enough, or at least maybe I personally have seen enough of that depicted. And I think the, the, the kind of messed up household they lived in was one of a lot of psychological degradation. And that, I think, was what we were trying to get with the turtle mm-hmm. thing, where it wasn't, there's many ways to, to have a rough childhood. <laughs> um, and I think what that scene was supposed to illustrate was that this was a very specific way of just making someone feel 
bad and helpless and, you know, not worthy of, you know, being a person and, and stuff like that, that I think was true to the, some of the experiences of people in our lives and giving us a window into what it was like to be them while younger, but focusing on now sort of making sure we didn't, um, I don't know, I don't want to say have it be exploitative, but I think there's a lot of just focusing on the aftermath of, of all this and and how they transformed because of it. And yes, some of the, the, some of the stuff, I mean, I said the, the one scene where he comes upon her was very difficult, but there were a lot of difficult scenes that involved all of us doing certain kinds of puppy scrolling at the end, you know, our own version of puppy scrolling at the end. We, we took mandatory naps halfway through the day uh, and we would just, it was a part of our production cycle because we work so hard and it's just us on the crew. So we would take 20 minute naps right after lunch. And that was a way of just listening to, you know, ASMR or whatever we needed to do to get, to get back into sort of the movie. Yeah. So can you explain what that filming process was like if, it, if it's just the four of you? Yeah. So I'll give you a sort of a fun, two fun examples. One, the, his, his apartment is my, was my room. So when we cleared it out, I didn't have a bed. And then at the end, there was this giant glyph on the wall that we couldn't wipe off. So the mattress was in the hallway and we just were sort of like getting in there and I was sleeping on the floor with this terrifying glyph above my, like where I was sleeping every day we would wake up, we would have breakfast and it would just be the four of us. And then we'd stop being friends. I mean, we'd stay friends, but it's like, and now the day begins. And, you know, I had scheduled it all and the actors would act, I would shoot and sometimes do shooting and sound. And sometimes one of the other actors would do sound. And it was a little, it was a real adventure, especially shooting out at night, you know, at four in the morning during those fight scenes, there was a very funny moment where, you have to hire a cop because, and you should, because there's guns and knives and it's New York and you need to be protected and have people know that this is a movie. But when we were out there, just us, the cop was like, this is a movie. <laughs> uh, but then when we were like, oh, do you want to see the fight scene? He was like, oh, that's awesome. I get it now. You know? Yeah. I mean, it really was a kind of homemade uh, production. Um, and I give so much credit to the actors as well. I mean, I was doing triple duty, but they were learning how to, they love themselves. They did their own makeup. Uh, you know, they really threw, threw their hearts and souls into the process as well. And that's sometimes we all think that the only reason we do this is because we just like making stuff together and movies are just happen to be the thing that we make. It was really so much fun. It was really hard and also so much fun. I wonder, though, for the whole process of how you're making this, like that fight sequence was really, really enormously impressive in terms of the way that the action is carried off. And I wondered how many people you had on the street at that time. We had us and then one stunt person and the cop at the end of the thing. Are you that we had, That's it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's we, I, I scouted all the locations. I lived near there. So we found places that had good natural light. And then I used a, um, I hope by revealing some of these things, it will inspire people <laughs> to go make movies. But you can, we bought a $35 light on it. I, I love gaffing. So I was like, you have to, you're only allowed one light black shear or else you'll just like have too much fun with lighting. So we found a $35 LED on Amazon and put a paper towel over it and then use that as sort of a floating key light. And the rest of it, we're just finding places with good mixed light and positioning the actors right and i think i actually learned this this is a weird shout out but bradford young who i think is now shooting marvel movies or or whatever but i gaffed for him once 
And he did really light things, but also what he was so good at is being like, looking at a room and being like, put a lamp there, let's put the actress here, and would just bounce some light off the ceiling. And it was mostly about blocking and finding light and finding the cinematography, rather than forcing stuff to sort of match what was in his head. And we, we did do a lot of preparation. The guys uh, prepared with a stunt choreographer in LA for many weeks. And I worked with a former or actually current MMA fighter on some of the fights, me and him in, in Boston, which in retrospect was actually very scary because he was like 6'2 and had never done any stunts before. So he was like, oh, what if they did this? And he would just like grab me and just like put me in a headlock. And I'd be like, that was awesome. But like, holy shit, like you could... You don't know what it's like to like not hurt someone like you're supposed to in movies. You know what I mean? So I'm glad I walked out of that one. But we, we did we did a lot of prep work with it. But then on set, yeah, it was just us and the, and the one uh, stunt person. That's pretty incredible. And I have to say, like, it's an enormous achievement the way that it comes off in the film. And I was also really impressed by how stunning it looked in camera is it okay if I ask, like, what camera you shot this on? Yeah, we, we shot it in a, on an A7, uh, which is really, really, it's a tiny little camera. It was really hard to pull focus because I was just looking at this little thing. And we shot sometimes with really high-speed lenses, which is how we could shoot at night with just using, you know, the, the light of New York. And then a lot of uh, a weird adapter and old Pentax still lenses, which is why there's all those weird flares everywhere, um, because it was I wanted it to have... I loved the way Good Time looked and I loved the way sort of 70s neo-noir looked. And yeah, it was fun to talk about technical stuff. A- A7s are great for shooting at night. You can even shoot in moonlight with it. It's, it's, uh, it's a good camera for that kind of stuff. Because you, you use so many different kinds of lenses and so many different kinds. I mean, it seems like there are multiple different kinds of cameras being used throughout. And uh, I, was, I was just really impressed by how much technical gear you must have had to make this. Oh, we we just had a little A7, uh, a handheld little A7 uh, with these old lenses, and then I got a I got a little um, I think it was about four hundred dollars a sort of stabilizer because uh, it's such a light camera. Uh, so for all those moving shots, we could do that. But I next time I think I will finally give myself an AC because it was very difficult to pull focus at night. You get good at it, but even so, it, it distracts from directing and stuff like that sometimes. <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for this film. And I just wonder, yes. like, what are the main things that you hope an audience is going to take away from this film? I, you know, you always have hopes, but you, you have to, I think, accept that a film is a little bit, I don't know, maybe like a kid or, or sort of a cousin that you like help raise and then they sort of go off into the world and you're like oh god i hope this works out <laughs> uh but i also realized that it's sort of not mine once it hits you know once it hits other people's eyeballs that it's theirs so i think i would hope that people see some part of themselves in in these characters and can gain a little bit of you know when the lights come up at the end they can feel like oh man like uh, I don't know, I can do this or whatever, you know, <laughs> or, or feel understood in some way. I think that would be great. Um, hopefully they had an enjoyable, entertaining time. But, uh, you know, this is this is really theirs. I think it's been a really tough two years. And so I, I do hope that it feels like a movie that's about darkness, but it's also about the light at the end of darkness and, you know, that struggling through to get to the light and how it is possible. 
Well, thank you so much. It's a wonderful film and a, a stunning validation of experience. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you all so much. This was one of my favorite interviews. It feels like you all really got it. So I, I, it was wonderful <laughs> to talk to you. Happy to hear. So thank you so much. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land, and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch. Thank you.